how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 460, where I sat down with Jennifer Hamaday, the author of The Singing Series and founder of Finding Your Voice. Jennifer started her career as a professional singer, and there was no plan B, she said. She's known as the voice whisperer. She's a coach, counselor, speaker, singer, and author. She's recorded, performed, or toured with people like Stevie Wonder, Patti LaBelle, Christina Aguilera, Usher, Kid Rock, Jessica Simpson, and countless others. In this interview, we talk about her journey to an, be an author, what singing was designed to be, the pros and cons of shows like American Idol or The Voice, how trends change in music, practicing in the face of anxiety, and practical and emotional pieces of what it means to be creative. You can find out more about her at findingyourvoice.com. There is a link in the description. Well, so I started my career as a professional singer. Um, and I always knew I wanted to sing. It was sort of, there was no plan B as it were. Um, but I never fancied myself a writer. And then in the course of my singing career, I started writing songs, which I loved. I focused heavily on lyrics. And I don't know if that is how I got into writing books, but um, the, the short version of the long story is that in my singing work, I noticed that a lot of people seem to have these issues that seemed technical but i felt were emotional and at the time back when email started i was answering the same questions again and again and again and someone said why don't you turn this into a book so you don't have to keep answering the same questions and that's how that started so it was um not a conscious choice it was sort of like an organic uh evolution and then since then i've written two more i'm working on a fourth and i i love it i i if you'd asked me, you know, 20, 30 years ago, if I would be writing books, it, I would have looked at you like you were nuts. But now it's just such a it's a wonderful form of self-expression. And it really feels to me like a like a contribution. And that's it's such an honor to to feel that to have those two things together. Yeah, I've noticed doing this show, I've done 400 episodes plus now. I started very like tactical questions. Then I kind of got, oh, that does that stuff doesn't really matter. That's kind of like the icing. What, what were some of those questions you were getting that inspired the early books? Mm. Um, well, mainly from singers, things like I'm having trouble hitting these notes and I notice it seems so effortless for you. So a lot of it was about effortlessness. A lot of it was about confidence. You know, I, I love to sing, but I get so nervous. I don't know what the problem is. Um, and then the third overarching one that I can remember, of course, I'd have to at three in the morning, I'll think of some others. But um, the other one was, you know, I love to sing, but I've never been trained. There was this this perception that, um, you know, if I haven't been trained or trained in the right way or at the right school, that somehow I'm less of a uh, not only less of a singer, but I have less of a right to sing. So um, those were the main themes, largely all related to confidence. Right. Um, think yeah if, if anything else comes to me brock i'll let you know but those were the ones that i remember 
So those are big mindset issues. I'm actually working on my second book now. The title I'm toying with is Self-Reliant Artists. And I like the idea that you don't need permission or gatekeepers. It sounds like that's a lot of the same ideas. Um, how do you, so it seems like I understand how you found the questions, but it seems like answering them might be more complicated. Are you Is the book with like self-evaluations or how do you kind of do the therapeutic side of things? Well, so interestingly, before I answer your question, I'll say that some, all three of my books really were, are in this realm, sort of the psychology of performance, but I was doing it mainly intuitively. So I did end up um, about 10 years after the first book came out, going back to graduate school in psychology, just to sort of get the academic underpinnings of what I'd been doing intuitively. Um, but now to come back to your question, uh, the books are all different, but mainly what I've done is it's not in a question and answer format, but I've designed the chapters in each book um, to largely focus on the main concerns that I would see in my private practice um, or when I was on tour and giving master classes or in these emails. So, for example, the first book, and I don't have it in front of me, you know, there's misconceptions in singing, language, the role of language in singing and creativity. Uh, learning and creativity, fear and the psychology of performance, um, things like that. Um, and then in my my latest book, which is a continuation of the first, that's broken down into three parts. The first is sort of the origins of singing, sort of, you know, what what was singing designed to be? Because now in our sort of American Idol and voice era, it's performance, it's joy, but it's also sort of proving ourselves in perfectionism, whereas once upon a time it was communication. Uh, and then I go into the relationships on stage and in the studio between singers and the, the people with whom they work. And then the last one's the technology on stage and in the studio. So it's a long answer to your question, but each time when I was designing the books and coming up with what I wanted to say, I really thought, what are the biggest questions that the people whom I have the pleasure of serving what do they need? And I try to design the books to answer those questions. Do you feel like that the world of singing or the way people think they break in is wrong? Like Dave Grohl has this big rant where he hates the voice of American Idol because it makes it a contestant, you know, like Nirvana would have never made it that way. Like they just played in garages and bars and everything else. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about the way things are set up now? Is it set up to kind of hurt people's mindset for, for singing? Mm. Well, you know, I have a personal philosophy, this is personal, that I try not to look at what's right or wrong. I think that good can come from most anything. And I, one of my favorite quotes, Irving Berlin, is reported to have said, never hate anything that sells a million copies. And I love that. I think that we can learn something from everything. I actually sang back up on American Idol for a season. So I, I feel, and I've written some articles about my time there uh, and my experience. I, uh, I'm not hedging. I'm going to answer your question, but I think that let's look at the pros in my experience of, of these types of shows. Millions of people are watching people sing. Mm -hmm. Millions of people who otherwise would be watching a sitcom or the news or something else are, are tuning into and excited about people singing and sharing themselves and their voices. And similarly, Thousands of people, maybe millions of people want to get on television and sing, and thousands have the opportunity to do so. So I think that those are great. I think to maybe to Dave's point, and I, I, I definitely understand that, I think that's more about the kinds of music that are welcome and encouraged there. 
they are today at least like massively heavy power singers power ballads the biggest highest longest held note you know wins but one could argue that that could have happened without these types of shows i mean we have trends in music probably as we do in film and all writing right we have there were the Whitney Houston's and Mariah Carey's and Christina Aguilera's and then Nora Jones came along and all of a sudden everyone wanted to be like Nora Jones right and then so I think that those kind of trends about what's popular and what the A&R and record labels are looking for are like anything in marketing it's like this is the new hot thing we want to reproduce that and I do think that to his point some of these shows have certainly um encouraged that but I think it's, you know, I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. I also say, like, we're mainly talking about the one or two people who seem to win. But there's also every year, like you said, thousands of people that are just getting noticed and then, mm. you know, elevating their careers one way or another from that. So tell me about um, your coaching program. Like, how did this kind of, did this come from the books and what's it about and all that kind of stuff? Well, that it's funny that too, if you, if you'd ever said to me, you're going to be a writer and you're going to be a coach or a therapist, I would have laughed. <laughs> And now I'm all three. So uh, that that actually started. So when I was touring with different artists and companies, I toured. Um, I sang backup with different artists and toured with with companies like Cirque du Soleil and 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 different commercial artists, Def Leppard and and Christine Aguilera and that ilk. Um, occasionally, I would have the opportunity to do master classes wherever I was, and so those weren't clients per se, but they were people that then would later come to me and say, you know, when you're back in New York, can I work with you? And I remember saying, you know, I'm, I'd be happy to help you, but I'm not a coach. It's not my field. And like the books, just organically, more and more people kept coming, especially after the first book was out. And I finally just, one of my life mottos is say yes to everything. So I finally said, okay. And I, with a huge caveat that I really don't know what I'm doing, but I can, I can tell you what I've learned and I can observe you with love and humility and offer you suggestions uh, and we'll see where that goes. And that apparently was uh, something that a lot of people wanted. And so just very organically that grew. And now I work with, I do work with professional singers, commercial singers and Broadway singers on technical issues, mainly that are caused or exacerbated by emotional ones. Um, but I also work with a lot of executives. Uh, I do a lot of keynote speaking on these kinds of issues how can we be more effective as communicators, which in my opinion and experience is usually directly correlated with how willing we are to be vulnerable and present um, with each other and with ourselves, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in a group. Uh, so my, my clients run, you know, are, are run the gamut from performers to executives to um, a lot of public speakers I'll work with. Um, and there's some technical work, but it really usually has a kind of emotional, psychological component to it. Without you know being too specific, are there any examples that come to mind for those who are having trouble wrapping their heads around this a little bit? Because it is, it is kind of hard to explain the like psychology and some a lot of its confidence, I would imagine. But any examples come to mind where like this person had, had trouble with this, so we did X, Y, Z to resolve that? Yeah, I can give you a couple. Um, so maybe one of the most classic ones, let's look at the performance anxiety piece of the psychology umbrella. Someone who, for example, whether they're a singer or a speaker, or I'll work with people that are going in to do pitches, corporate pitches or interviews for 
any kind of job, maybe they feel relatively confident with the content or the, the music, maybe they feel good in their practicing, but something happens to them when they get ready to get in front of the microphone or get in front of the interviewer or get in front of the camera. And how do they manage that? So with those clients specifically, it's a two-pronged approach. One is just consistent and relentless practice until it physically, we normalize, this is what I do even when I'm anxious. Because if we're not practiced in the face of anxiety, performance anxiety, our mind shifts into a different mode. We go into fight or flight and our, you know, our resources are not being, are being used by something other than our prefrontal cortex. We can't remember what we want to say. So relentlessly practicing and getting everything into the muscle memory is, is a way of saying it means that even when we're nervous, we go into automatic pilot and we can reliably deliver. So there's that. And then the other side of it is, looking with them at what about them as human beings might be anxious about rejection, fears of rejection, fears of success is a big one that people really underestimate, especially my clients that are doing really well and on the verge of everything they think they've always wanted. But now all of a sudden they're more nervous than when they were starting. What's that all about? So it's those two, and please interrupt me if I haven't answered your question. I make, make sure I do. It's there's the practical piece and the emotional piece. Um, please continue to ask me questions. If I come up with another great example, I'll, I'll let you know, but that's a big one. That's yeah, one of the biggest ones. I've thought a lot of, about that. And some of that, your answer reminds me of like, I think Michael Caine, Anthony Hopkins, they famously read a script a thousand times or something insane like that. So they can't really make mistakes. They start to change the way their performance is. Mm -hmm. I've like in my first book, I've often said that when I didn't feel prepared, it felt like I just hadn't done enough research. I wasn't actually ready to do whatever it is. But I think you're kind of combining what's research, but also like this preparedness of like the performance part of it, which is different for writers, maybe because and even in writing, though, if you write movies, you can write in alone in a room. You write mm -hmm. TV shows, now you're with 10 other writers. It's a very different like transition for those screenwriters and, and TV yeah. writers and everything else. So um, yeah, do, does that, I mean, do you see a combination of things like research plus preparedness? I know a lot of young creatives, for lack of a better phrase, kind of half-ass something and hope it does successfully. And you can't mm -hmm. really do that. You have to really give it 100%, even if it's kind of a failure, you know. Any Any thoughts on that? Well, there's, there's so you in your, in what you just said, there were so many wonderful little threads I'd love to pick up on. So please interrupt or redirect me. But, you know, I, I don't have any personal experience or, or working with people who do writing in, in a collective. So I can't speak to that. But hopefully some of what I offer will be helpful and interesting to your audience. But I think that, um, Going to writing, I love, I'm sure you've read, or maybe some of your, your audience has read Stephen King's wonderful book on writing or Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. There, there's so many great, Julia Cameron's great work. And I think that the majority of the people that I've read, that I trust and respect, all say the same thing. And that is you have to have a practice. You, you, not, you don't have to, but they recommend every day, doing it every day, because it really sort of greases the wheel of just automating it. You know, it's something that you just do. And it gets in front of that self-critic and that self-censor of, is this good? Is this bad? Should I do it? Would do I have anything important to say? Same thing happens to singers. If you wake up and practice every day for 30 minutes, 
your brain might still say, do I sound good? Am I worthy? Blah, blah, blah. But you're, you're in the habit of acting before thinking, or at the very least prioritizing action over thought and feeling. So I do think that again, everyone's different. And I, I think we all have to honor what works. I do know some writers and singers who actually avoid practice because they really do wait for that moment of creative inspiration and that works for them. Mm-hmm. God bless them. <laughs> the majority of, of, of us mere mortals, I, I think that having a routine and practice is good, not only for our art, whatever that may be, but also for, there's something in the ritual of the practice that I th- think helps to, for us creatives who can be so emotional, wonderfully so, it helps to give us an anchor mm-hmm. for our artistry and our passion that that can be, pun intended, very grounding to us. And that, you know, sort of a, a foundation from which we can then explore um, whatever it is that we want to explore. Yeah. I like, I've been kind of, I've come up with this phrase, I guess, recently that I think the quality comes through the quantity, especially in writing. And I heard this guy, Alex Ramosi, who's a big marketing guy. He was preparing to do a presentation in front of about half a million people live on the internet or something, okay. one of the things, but they were talking about how much time went into it. And he said, well, at some point in his career, he shifted to start thinking about things in hundreds of hours. How many hundreds of hours does this take? And then it's not, then it's all kind of easy. It's just like I've got a long runway to get ready and do this and prepare. When you actually get there, you do know it frontwards and backwards, kind of like you were saying. Yeah, I definitely think that I that sounds very wise to me. I mean, I think that if I if I can give you two examples that just popped into my head. I mean, for me, for example, and you may very well have this experience too. When someone's kind enough to ask me to do an interview you know, 20 years ago, maybe I would be thinking, well, what do I say? What what would I want to say now because of the hundreds and probably thousands of hours of being swimming in these, you know, seas, it's very easy for me to have these conversations with you because this is the the world I swim in for hundreds and thousands of hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that there is merit either, of course, in just the longevity of the journey, but also for those who maybe are starting out to consciously and proactively put in that kind of time because i think ultimately in our creativity i think i'd love to hear what you think we want ease and we want joy and pleasure and that i think comes as sort of the flower on the plant of the discipline the rigor the 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 work we put into learning our craft you know and i think that you can't really have the flower without the plant and similarly i think the ease and the joy and the the fluidity and flexibility and play come from that foundation which to your very well articulated point is really about the quantity it's the quantity of time it's the amount of time we put in yeah yeah i think when i when i've you know, done 400 interviews now the first 50 i was probably just i prepared a ton and i was just reading questions i really wasn't even listening to what they were saying i was just going back and forth <laughs> and now i just have a conversation i think they're much better because all the all the in-depth stuff is like we're just kind of you know playing tennis here a little bit talking about things um but also so tell me a little more about your coaching so i started working with coaches myself recently i'm coaching a few people the first thing i'm doing is like helping people write books i've been writing books for a long time as a ghost writer mm-hmm. um, working with coaches i noticed like a screenwriting coach said well you're 
character transformation is not big enough. There's things that like I would have never seen myself. Um, mm-hmm. Any anything you can add about the benefits of working with a coach just to kind of move faster, like as as a creative person. Um, yeah, and again, I'm not I'm not just blowing smoke up your tush, but your questions are great. They're very they're they're deceptively they're, they're very rich. So I, I find that I want to answer them on a multitude of levels. Um, you know, I think that probably the most important thing about working with a coach in any realm, right? Whether we call that coach a therapist or a co- whatever whatever support that is, I think it's it shows it's two things. One, it shows a commitment to growth, right? If I'm if sitting alone in my home, like I really want to grow, maybe I can be motivated to make those changes. I can go on the internet, I can read books, but having someone in the world who's there to support us and cheer us on and encourage us and give us constructive criticism, I think shows a real commitment to whatever it is that we want help with. And it also usually for my clients, when someone's there holding you accountable and demanding of you, we step up, you know, faster, better. Um, So I think that that's important. But I think that the biggest reason it's great to work with a coach, um, and, and I work with coaches too, for the same reason is, we only know what we know. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know our blind spots. We don't. We can't see the things behind us that other people can see very clearly. So I think that if we're someone, you know, creatively, personally, professionally, in relationships, whatever, whatever area of our lives, that really wants to live whatever we deem to be an extraordinary life. I think having someone in our corner who can say, you know, I don't know if have you ever seen this and oh my gosh, no, I haven't. That that's a real opportunity. I think that I think of coaching as something that is a gift we give ourselves, frankly. Was there any false beliefs you had about the type of work you did that that, that come to mind that like a coach showed you or that maybe you just came to after hundreds of hours of work? Another really <laughs> how much time do we have? I can give you one. I've never really thought about this this way. I think I'm 49 and I've been in my first book I wrote in my 20s and I've been singing since I was in my teens. And I think that one thing that I thought was true in my field and in life was that there was a direct correlation between age and wisdom. Hmm. And uh, I can say that as someone who's a little older, right? I'm not being rude to other people, but Uh, What I've discovered is actually, and maybe this is related to your coaching question, um, I notice it sometimes in myself and I notice it in others that life hands us these milestones, right? High school, college, job, marriage, kid, and then it's kind of like the retirement, you know, whatever. And I feel like many of us can get into ruts of, let's say we're doing something professionally that we're good at. And then we notice 10 years later, we're doing the same thing. And maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but have we evolved? Have we grown? Have we challenged ourselves to look newly at the industry we're in or the work that we do daily, weekly, monthly, annually? And I think that a lot of people don't. And I think it's something that would benefit all of us. And so I think that younger people when they come to look for support whether it's a therapist or a coach or whatever a mentor 
they think, oh, that person's older, they've had so much more experience, and therefore there's a commensurate amount of wisdom that they've accumulated. And certainly experience and life experience, that's its own kind. Hmm. But I think to flip it, we, we therefore underestimate the wisdom and enthusiasm and sort of uh, the growth hormone <laughs> inherent in young people. I think we underestimate young people and overestimate older people. That's something that I think young people would say, but yeah. I don't know how many middle and upper age people would admit that or even think that. So that's something that I've been sort of reflecting on recently. So my question is, how do you know as, as someone in the more the mentee or apprentice position that they're the real deal? Well, something you said earlier, you only start doing this because, you know, you didn't start with supply and find demand. You were demand and you brought the supply. People were asking you how to do it. So that makes me think you're really <laughs> just that one thing as an example. But I've heard this other thing from Benjamin Hardy where he said a lot of doctors, they don't have 20 years experience. They have one year experience that they've done 20 times because they do this. They don't learn anything new. Right? <laughs> exactly. How does one know that they're working with someone who's also growing and has true richness to them? Well, that that's a great that's interesting. You know, one one of the big parts of my approach and I, this is there's a whole chapter dedicated to it in the first book first book is I, I really believe that the coaching relationship also, I even mentioned the doctor patient relationship, therapist, client relationship, teacher, student relationship should be one of partnership has to be one of partnership. If it's to be effective for a couple of reasons, that doesn't mean that we're not going to someone in, who has vast amounts of wisdom and knowledge for us, but when it's respectfully and energetically a partnership, it means that we are not just empowering the client with the knowledge that they have to come to the table equally, you know, to make use of that information, but that they're responsible for making sure that they're getting what it is that they've come for. Mm. I think most people go, to use your example, to a doctor and it's like, okay, I don't know anything, you know everything, what should I do? And a lot of people, I'm sure you've had this come to, to us the same way. And my one of my first jobs is to say, listen, you know your body better than I do. You know your voice better than I do. You know yourself better than I do. You know how you learn better than I do. You're the more empowered one here. You need to make sure you get what it is you came for. And in my experience, most of the time, people don't know what they're, what they're coming for. Hmm. Well, I want to be a better singer. Oh, what does that mean to you? Well, I don't know. I thought you'd kind of tell me. Well, I want you to go home, not trying to talk myself out of a job, but go home or go wherever or hop off Zoom. And I want you to really think what it is you want and what it is you need. And I think one, people, when they figure that out, the coaching relationship is so much more powerful, but also they have to address that oftentimes people don't want the responsibility of, for their own journey and success. And so they have to confront that and say, I don't know, I kind of wanted someone to give me the answers and to just tell me what to do. And that's not a that's not a long term strategy for any kind of success in my experience. I think that's part of the other problem, maybe with American Idol or with studios or with publishers, is that there's a thing about Chase Jarvis where people just want to hand the keys over. You want to get your thing done and you want someone to publish it and promote it for you yep. and everything else as if. <laughs> 
Because I think like when I started out, I was like, oh, you can write an amazing book and be J.D. Salinger or something like but right. reality, it's like you need to plan to write 20 books or, you know, like it's this is your life. This is not like this one thing. It's not a lottery ticket, you know? Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, as I said, as I already confessed, I'm being 49. I'm not like a very tech savvy person, but I think the American Idol thing, but also, you know, social media today, which I think also has its wonderful strengths and limitations, it prioritizes this sort of immediate, immediate, immediate show your best self. And Im Im implicit in that, to your point, is that when people are great at something, they're great now. Nobody puts on TikTok like a time lapse of 15 years of paying their dues, right? If they did, it would actually be helpful. Then people would realize, oh, this isn't something that comes easy. This is something I'm gonna have to work on, commit to. Yeah. and care about a full as a full-time job even when no one's seeing me or paying me is it we're almost out of time is there anything else you want to add or where can people find out more about you or learn about your coaching program uh well first of all this has gone by like in a flash so thank you for this conversation thank you. Uh, my website's findingyourvoice.com please don't hesitate to you or anyone else reach out um, there's tons of information there and, and a way to contact me Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.